Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today we're getting into part two of this Story Untold travel series. Travel is something I think a lot about. The gift that it is to see new places. The way that can change your perspective on things. Sometimes it can be a reset, sometimes it's just nice to get away. But I felt in my own experience that travel has been every bit as valuable as any formal education I've had, and also a hard habit to break once you start. This week, I want to go back to a few of the more memorable conversations around travel. I've had a lot of guests with some pretty wild experiences and also some good insights, whether that's thinking of travel like developing a muscle, travel in the sense of giving up your pillow, lessons learned from walking a continent, or what it's like to see the world through a camera lens. I'll start with Mike Spencer Bowne, episode 27 of Story Untold, and a candidate for world's most interesting man. It's, it's not in this part of the conversation, but he once spent 86 days alone in the backcountry of British Columbia. He's also been to every country on the planet, and for the last 29 years, has more or less traveled nonstop. He's got a very interesting idea of what it means to see the world, and he wrote a book about it called The World's Most Traveled Man. Here's Mike Spencer Bound. Right at the start of the book, you, you open with this segment on the Palace of the Winds and this analogy there. Could you break that down a little bit and explain um, sort of how that applies to a lot of what you see in modern travel? Oh, yeah, that was I saw the Palace of the Winds for the first time in the, I think it was the mid-90s in Rajasthan. And it's like a, a facade of um, pink stone, quite beautifully carved. And it was meant to allow Rajasthani princesses the ability to observe what was going on in the marketplace or, or the hustle and bustle of the city, but without actually being exposed to any danger. So they would, uh, you know, get like a view of what real life was like, what, but um, kind of in a fake sense. I mean, it's almost like an amusement ride in a sense. So, the, you know, they're getting the vision of it without the danger or the immersement. And I think that's a good analogy now for the way a lot of people do their traveling, where they just whisk around between the major airports and um, five-star or four-star hotels of the world. And it's these kind of people who think it's quite a small world because they keep running into the same people again and again. But I think if you if you get out of this facade and you really experience what the world is really like, you don't tend to run into the same old people. And I think you have a lot better experience and a lot more um, a lot more real knowledge of uh, how the world really works. Where did this curiosity for you start? Or where did you where did you first uh, have your experience of getting out of that frame of of thinking about the world to realize that there was more to what an experience could be, what travel experience could be, than simply doing what everybody else was doing? I think even from the very start, I noticed that because I, I'd learned certain things. Like, like for instance, in school, I was quite good at getting high marks. And I was very motivated because my teachers had told me I didn't have to attend if my marks were high enough. Mm-hmm. So I, ma- I made sure that I had high enough marks where I only had to come in for the test. And the rest of the time, I just did my own thing. And I was quite good at, for instance, uh, social studies is something that's the equivalent of history. And I think I had the highest mark in Alberta for um, the departmental exam for that. So I was quite good at it. But once I got down to Central America, which is my first off the beaten track destination, mm-hmm. I noticed that everything I'd learned in this academic sense was mostly useless or you know, a good part of it was wrong as well. And when you actually talk to the people uh, down there to see what's really going on, and you look at you know what poverty really looks like, or the different grades of poverty, or how the people who are doing well in a town, you know how how they would think about their circumstances. It was completely different than the book learning. So I think I just uh, gained a, res- 
a respect for this method of learning where you actually go and immerse yourself and directly learn. And, you know, that continued all through the years. I mean, it's the past few years I'm not learning as much because people are pretty similar in a way. So after a while, you can kind of see the patterns. But uh, it was definitely interesting enough to keep me going for more than two decades. How many passports did you go through? Because I know if, if at least a few times you, you would renew a passport just to get some of those uh, troubling stamps out of there, the ones that you know they're going to get you questioned. Yeah, and even even if I didn't, like I, I blow through a 48-pager in about a year and a half. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, so um, and sometimes you just find like, let's say you're only two-thirds of the way through a 48-pager, you might still find you've accumulated too many dodgy countries. And then you get the opposite problem, like you get uh, being held up at Heathrow, for instance, mm-hmm. or uh, coming into Canada or coming into the States, you can get a lot of trouble. I had nine hours once at Heathrow. I had a couple sevens, a few four or fives. There's something on my record now. So, And um, even though I'm kind of aged out of what the profile is, so I don't get as much trouble, uh-huh. when I was still within the profile of the younger guy traveling alone, they used to be looking like they're going to cause a lot of trouble for me. But then they call something up on the screen. They say, oh, okay, Mr. Bowne, actually, you can go. So clearly they made a note eventually on their um, on their file. Uh, how how familiar did you become with some of those uh, TSA agents or, or airport security folks? Uh, if you were going, yeah, I knew I knew the police quite well. Yeah, uh, usually you get a different guy who was doing the actual uh, interviewing, uh-huh. but yeah, I knew the police quite well. You know, I was joking at one point if I knew them any better, I'd have to send them Christmas cards. If you're going to give a pitch to somebody, uh, a sales pitch to somebody who's uh, who's working in, in that job where they have you know two weeks and they're, they're trying to think, why, why would I get out and go anywhere? I've, I've got everything I, I want here or I just can't think about why I should ever leave. Uh, how do you convince them to get out and, and go and, and see some of the world? Well, first of all, I might not try to convince them because <laughs> yeah. I tend to sort of talk to them a little bit and I'd see, are they someone who's, who's very interested in the world? Mm-hmm. Because some people aren't and that's fair enough. But if they are very interested in the world, then I, I might make an effort to show what it's possible to do and the, the kind of adventures and stories you can become a part of if you travel. Right. But if they're not, I'd probably try to steer them towards some place that's just kind of fun. Because there's some areas we can just go and you can um, party. Right. <laughs> so, you know, you know, for a lot of people, perhaps if they're just taking a short trip off, a uh, short break from work, maybe it's better they go to a place where they can just get drunk and go to the disco or whatever. Yeah. That's fine too. So I'd, I'd be trying to sort of tailor my advice to this sort of person I think they are. But you do meet people who are kind of intellectually unsatisfied. Maybe their minds are working a little bit more than the average person. And if that's the case, they really should go out and see some of these different parts around the world. Right. And there's also the, the people that will say, I would love to do that kind of trip or I would love to go there. But uh, I think we as humans are very good at making excuses for why not. And, you know, some people there that may very well be the case that you can't afford to go there or, or you have things that are keeping you from going but i think we are good at making excuses for why not to get out and go experience new things and maybe it's a hesitancy to to experience change and and to experience uncertainty but uh but i don't mm. know what it is it's usually time that people can't afford these days i mean I even talk to some like safari operators in africa and they say it's not the expense anymore people hardly care what it costs is that they mm-hmm. can't afford the time because you know even like wealthy people from north america used to go out sometimes and, and spend like four months on safari yeah but now, you know, it, it can't be like that anymore. No, uh, everyone works all the time. Really, they work and they work and they work. I'm not sure what they have in mind. Like, like I meet sometimes people who are working quite a lot and doing extremely small amount of traveling, but they claim to be really interested in it. And they're thinking, well, I'm going to travel after I retire. And I'm thinking, no, you're not actually. Because unless you develop that skill over time, you won't have it when you retire. Like, let's right. say you hardly ever or never travel. By the time you're 65 or 68 or something, you, you're going to travel. You won't have the skill to travel. It'll be too bewildering. You'll end up probably going on a package tour. Right. So, you know, you've got to keep your skills up or develop those skills if you expect to be able to uh, make use of them later in life. 
last bit I find to be perhaps the most interesting part, that travel, at least his kind of travel, is a skill to practice, not something you can just pick up any time and do. And I think there's truth in that. I think there's a muscle to develop when it comes to getting outside of your comfort zone, unless you want to travel and eat the same things you did at home or sleep the same way you'd sleep at home and get on a tour bus and see the same things as everybody else. I think there's value in that, in building that muscle. Next up, let's go to Chris Urquhart, episode 31. Chris is the author of Dirty Kids, Chasing Freedom with America's Nomads. When they were just 22, they set off to follow these young teens and 20-somethings across the United States. And these people were essentially homeless. They're getting food out of dumpsters. They're squatting in these houses. And Chris kind of gets sucked into this world as a writer to tell their story. Here it is. Why don't we start off with uh, a woman that you met, a young woman that you met early on in your adventures, uh, this woman named Dharma. And she tells you that success in traveling is about giving up your pillow. What did that mean to you? It's funny that you mentioned that quotation because I really see that as the core, the crux of the book. (laughs) Giving up your pillow to me meant giving up everything in your life that you use to distract yourself or keep yourself comfortable and yeah, putting yourself out there in a genuine sort of direct way. (laughs) So where, what, what sort of situation were you at in your life going into the early stages of this book? Uh, You were a student at McGill at the time. What was sort of your situation in life as you were getting into your first encounters with uh, these people who are, nomads and people who are travelers and uh, people who are living life on the road. Yeah, so I started this book when I was at McGill, when we first went and started doing the field research, Keith Kahana and I. Um, and we were both interested in ethnography and alternative representation and self-representation and all the conflicts and interesting bits inside these discussions. Uh, Keetra Gahanna is an amazing photographer. So when we were at McGill, instead of like hanging out, we would um, we would just do stories. So we, we went to Coney Island, did a story about carnival workers, and we went and did a story about queer proms. So we just kept doing stories and then... We came across this New Mexico Rainbow Gathering in 2009, which was my first Rainbow Gathering. Mm -hmm. And that's where we realized this wasn't just like an article. It was uh, a whole book. So (laughs) (laughs) we we pursued it uh, over the next four, three, four years. Okay, so 2009, you go down to New Mexico for this Rainbow Gathering. What are your first impressions? You're you're pulling up, uh, you're hearing people calling out to each other, loving you. Uh, you don't really know what you're getting yourself into. What are you thinking? <laughs> I was completely overwhelmed when I first entered Rainbow Land. Um, a lot of people don't know a lot about it. I didn't know anything about it when I was going there, except a little bit of preliminary research. It was so <laughs> overwhelming. Uh, <laughs> sensory overload. And just sort of like a bizarre, yeah, bizarre sensory overload. I remember walking in and there was just people screaming, loving you, loving you. Everyone was just screaming at each other how much they loved each other. There were naked people everywhere. There was a topless woman riding a horse with a baby in a sling. There was just all this crazy (laughs) stuff happening. And I was just like, 
wow, <laughs> this is great. <laughs> Where did it go from being maybe apprehension or you know seeing that and and just pure sensory overload to exactly that uh, to I. I, I kind of like this or I, I kind of want to spend more time around this and, and get to know these people a bit more. When did you when did you start to, I guess, develop a fondness for for some of the characters that you would uh, spend the following years with? Yeah. So it was almost instant that I kind of fell in love with um, rainbow culture. It's very bizarre. <laughs> it's a it's a very bizarre mix of a lot of different subcultures, and it's always changing and shifting and malleable. And um, so, as soon as I was around that, like as soon as I could, you know, meet people, and like as soon as I arrived in New Mexico, basically, I I knew that this was something positive and something I was going to be a part of. It was definitely the high point at the mm. beginning. <laughs> yeah, things got hard. <laughs> what was it about the the people that you were meeting and what was it about Rainbow Land and um, that sort of feeling of maybe independence? What was it that spoke to you and, and drew you in? So for the actual assignment, um, it was for an Italian magazine called Colors Magazine. And we had pitched that we were going to do a story about teenage runaways specifically uh, at the Rainbow Gatherings. Mm -hmm. So when we just started, we basically were hanging out and finding kids that were just a little younger than us or our age because 22 at the time teacher was 21 mm -hmm. um and just sort of basically we just sort of became friends we were always very transparent about what we were doing but you know they were all kind of interested in similar things to us you know uh anti-capitalist punks you know like musicians like all stuff we like so we kind of met on a friendship level and it just moved from there there's a there's words that end the book, and these are Keitra's words, but along that line, uh, she mentions how no one loses their inner demons by taking to the road. Mm -hmm. um, how did those words speak to you? Yeah, I loved that quotation. That was from Keitra did a TED Talk about, um, about our experiences and about nomadic America. Uh, yeah, it it's hard, right? Because it's... You, get, you go into the ideas of distraction, traveling for distraction. Uh, then you look at substance abuse and, and sort of running, running from demons is a, you know, it's a huge theme throughout the book. A lot of people do it. And that's why a lot of people are traveling, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of people are running from the law. A lot of people are running from their own issues, you know, mm -hmm. um, that's a huge element. Uh, that's really interesting and complex. <laughs> I get the most out of that conversation is hearing about a kind of travel we don't often see or one that's romanticized but looks a little different when you're the one doing it. And I think that question of why do we travel is an important one. Is it about avoiding something or filling a void or is it about opening yourself up to something new? I think that question is especially relevant when we look at the way social media has influenced travel. This idea that you've got to document your trips and share them, and if not, then why travel in the first place? I think that's something worth keeping in mind. Another conversation that stuck with me is one with Mario Rigby. He was on episode 42. He's a personal trainer from Toronto and decided he was going to walk across Africa. And he did it. It took him two years, 12,000 kilometers from Cape Town to Cairo. And what's remarkable about his story is that he wasn't this endurance athlete beforehand. I mean, sure, he was a fit guy, a personal trainer, 
but not that different from you and me. I mean, before he did this walk, he had never gone camping in his life. For him, the inspiration was always his stepdad. He would share these pictures from the military of wrestling crocodiles and skiing down sand dunes. And Mario, as a kid, really took to that. Just an endlessly fascinating story. Here's a bit from that conversation. So you're on the plane from Toronto to Amsterdam and then to Cape Town. What, what's going through your head as you set off thousands of feet up in the air about to start this trip? I was thinking, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> you know, it, it became real. It became real as soon as I landed. And, you know, I've never been to Africa before. Mm-hmm. So to me, just to be in Africa was such a, an incredible experience. And you kind of forget what you're there for. You forget what you're, because you're so distracted by the, the music, the culture, the differences, you know, that mm-hmm. it didn't really bother me that much. Um, I think when it really hit me was the day before I left. To start walking. That's when I was, exactly, yeah, the yeah. first day, the, the day before. That's when it really kind of hit me hard. But luckily yeah. I had, there was this Zimbabwean kid that I met the day before. I decided to just walk around Cape Town a bit downtown. Mm-hmm. And there were these two Zimbabwean uh, youngsters. And they were talking about politics and things like that. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll, I'll introduce myself into their conversation. So I did. And they eventually asked me, okay, what, what are you here for? And I said, I'm doing this expedition. I'm walking across Africa. They were completely like astounded by that. They were just like, oh my God, what? That's crazy. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one kid, uh, Gilmore, he's ni- he was 19 at the time. He, he asked me, can I join you? And I said, absolutely. But, you know, I'm going to be waking up at 4 a.m., so you're going to have to come join me right away. And if you're late, I, I can't wait for you. Yeah. So he did that the next morning. And because, again, because of him, it made my first day really enjoyable. That company, yeah, to have that. Because, I mean, otherwise, the, the plan is you're going to be by yourself, right? You're, you're going to be alone for this expedition. Exactly. Um, the, well, the other problem was that because I enjoyed his company so much, I was kind of like, you know, hoping for that kind of company again. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about because, um, uh, and I will never be able to, to fully <laughs> relate, obviously, uh, to, to walking across a continent, but I, I've rode a, a bicycle across Canada. And, oh, wow, that's cool, man. And, uh, and that's part of what draws me to your story is, okay, knowing that you're going to have some experiences that I felt but only amplified, I know <laughs> just how much it meant to have that company with me at times. I would have people that I would meet up with for you know a few hours or maybe a day but when they're gone, exactly. it's almost as if it's almost like worse because it's like, well, <laughs> I felt so good when they were here, but now they're gone. And maybe it'd be better if I never even had that exactly. good in the first place. <laughs> I totally, totally get that. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of those moments and it's, uh, it, it, it kind of rips your heart apart a bit. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Yeah. So what, what did you pack along with you? What Everything in a backpack uh, that you're carrying on your back? You know what? Um, uh, I'm very embarrassed to say that um, the first day or the first time I came to Africa with my backpack, I had a machete and a whole bunch of weird survival stuff with me, you mm-hmm. know, unnecessary things. Like, who carries a machete with them? <laughs> that didn't give you problems uh, <laughs> going going through customs or anything like that? No, well, I had it. Um, it wasn't a carry-on. So. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, I think they didn't scan it. But if they had they scanned it, it probably <laughs> would have been... <laughs> Yeah. Were a questionable thing to bring along with you. I even carry. I think I had like maybe two 
two pocket knives and then like a like a big knife and then the machete. I don't know. It was just really unnecessary. Yeah. But it it wasn't it wasn't used for as a weapon. It was kind of because I thought I had to go through a lot of jungle and things like that. But right, you're going to be whacking our branches out of your way and exactly, and yeah, fending off clearly... animals. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I kept fantasizing like how what position I would put myself in if like a lion attacked me or something. But right, yeah, of what course was your... that didn't happen either. <laughs> <laughs> Did, what was your game plan if a lion was going to come? Did you play that out in your head of what? what you would do absolutely like i mean if you run away you're going to be prey so you have to go and attack back <laughs> i mean right. if you're going to go in you go all in i guess that's the plan yeah so you were i mean with the exception of that first day i mean you you knew going into it that you were mostly going to be alone for that experience what was it like to be alone for hours on end as you're making your way across the continent or did you find that you were alone did were you surprised at the people that you would meet uh, as you made your way along? I really was surprised at the people that I met, but there were times where I was, a week, I think the longest I've been alone was probably just over a week. Mm -hmm. um, that's along the wild coast in South Africa. And there are parts where there are just no people at all. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, that, you know what? I really learned how to be, like kind of become my best friend in a sense. Mm -hmm. Like I was very talkative in my head. You know, I, I never really had negative conversations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a way, I was surprised at how well I took that, actually. As you're walking along, I mean, you have this big backpack. You've got to be drawing stares from people as you're going into cities or towns. What, what are kind of people, how are they reacting to you as they see you? Usually what happens is they flock around me. I mean, again, every village is quite different. I never, I have a sense of what's about to happen because of how people treat me before I get to the village. Hmm. Like maybe there's like a, a, a walker or someone who's just kind of going from one village to the next, kind of delivering whatever parcels and whatnot. And the way they treat you kind of gives you an indication of how people in the village will treat you. Right, or yeah. the prior village, if, if people in the village before you are hostile toward you, then maybe they will be hostile toward you in the next one, right? But, right, right. Uh, yeah. it's, 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 it's always quite different, but it's always interesting. <laughs> Typically, the way, the, the way I would do it is I would end up in the village. I would go to the town center, and I sit down, I have a beer, and there's usually an alpha male or, like, the dominant male. Maybe he's a little bit tipsy or drunk, and he'll come up to me, you know, the bravest one of them all, uh -huh. and he'll be like, you know, like, uh, who are you? What are you doing here? What is your name? And then you're right. just like, all right. Then you go through the formalities because you, typically I know how to say a few words, at least the introduction yeah, to okay. yeah, yeah. Whatever, yeah, whatever village I'm going to. And, uh, you know, like I think people get kindness. They understand that, okay, this guy, he's just, he's just chilling and he's just kind of, he's a little bit crazy, but he doesn't mean harm. I think people can read this really well no matter what culture, tribe, or whatever you're from. And so they sense that for me. And usually what happens is they would voluntarily just say, hey, listen, you can sleep over at my house, especially if you make them laugh. I mean, they love, it's so simple, you know what I mean? Like, just a little bit, like, just maybe buy them a beer or, mm -hmm. you know, say a joke or, you know, touch their shoulder or something like that. And they just love that. And they're willing to do so much for you for so little. 
So you had to become a, a master in some sense of, I mean, constantly meeting new people day in and day out. And oh, it is constant, yeah. Endearing yourself to these people. You have to, you have to kind of convince complete strangers to let you, a six foot four guy, a muscular six foot four guy, kind of sleep in a home with his wife, children, and his uh, mother. Right. Tough sell sometimes. It's a tough sell, yeah. I mean, it's worked surprisingly, like ninety nine percent of the time. <laughs> uh huh. What else did you learn? From, from all of this, whether it was about yourself or just about the way that, you know, the world was, uh, things that you, you learned from the experience? Yeah, um, I would say about myself, I, um, I mean, you, your confidence, of course, uh, you realize that anything is really possible. And I know people say that a lot, but when it becomes reality and when it's like true in a sense, where anything you touch or think of and you can make it reality by pre-planning, by, you know, executing the steps to get there, mm. it becomes a very, it, everything is possible, really, in a sense. So you have this kind of, that's the, the confidence I'm talking about. Mm. That's me personally, about me, uh, what I've learned. But in terms of uh, humanity and all these kinds of things, you realize how similar we all are and, you know, Basically, we all come from like the same fundamental background. We have these needs. We need food, shelter, water. We need family, friends, love. And then, you know, the hierarchy just keeps going up until we get to enlightenment. And, uh, you know, the way that we get to enlightenment is basically, it's very, it's different for everybody, but mm. the fundamentals are all the same. Like the way you are, the way I am, we started from like this empty sponge and as we're moving through life, like things are being added to the sponge and we're just being like, you know, filled with substances and ideas and whatever. So, you know, that's, that's just kind of like the spicing on right. the same, on the same meal, but the meal tastes different, but it's essentially the same thing. And that's who we are. We are just all kind of just trying to survive and uh, you kind of see everyone's perspective. That connection with other people, that's really the most special thing I can think of in my own travels. I, I had that time and again when I traveled my own country and counted on strangers a lot of the time to host me. You get a real sense for how genuine people are out there. It's really hard to distrust your neighbor after something like that. It's often the unknown, right, that lets us generalize and make assumptions about people because we don't know any different. But once you know, that barrier is gone. The last story I want to bring, and it's hard because there are so many to choose from, is from Brittany Muma. Brittany was on episode 61. She's a photographer, associate producer, and a professional skier. She's been all over the world to tell her stories through her camera and has picked up more than a few stories along the way. Hers is interesting because she wasn't always a photographer. That came later in life for her. She's really more interested in skiing, in fact. She'd grown up in Alaska, then moved to Boston for school, then decided she needed a change of scenery and went to Wyoming, but she needed a job. And so she took on this internship with a production company. And since then, it's taken her all over the place. And she's really learned a lot from it all. Here's a bit of that conversation. If we could speak first about your trip to Nepal, tell me how that one came together, what you were doing there and the memorable bits of it. 
Yeah, um, so we went to Nepal last fall. A gentleman named Steve Furman had, uh, he used to be a big part of the American Alpine Club and um, a climber known for having first ascents on unnamed, unclimbed remote peaks. And he was doing that for a long time and then focused on his business for a while and um, kind of lost sight of what he really loved to do. And then he was uh, diagnosed with prostate cancer that then spread to his bloodstream, I believe. Mm. And, um, and he got really, really, really sick. And so he came to Dirk and I asking if we would go to Nepal as he wanted to make one last attempt on a peak, on a remote peak in far western Nepal. And um, we were like, okay, but like, let's think about it. You know, what's the story here? You know, like it's, it's, it's bigger than just Steve wanting to do one last climb. And, and really the point of the story was, uh, you know, Steve wanted to send out a message to the world of, you know, live every day to its fullest. Don't let this world pass you by because you're like, hey, I, I'll do that in you know, next time or a few years or a few days, like live, like live now while you can. And so we flew to far Western Nepal and uh, ended up spending the next 35 days. I think we covered, we covered over 300 miles through jungle and mountains and, um, and tried to climb this peak. And, uh, Unfortunately, um, at about 18,000 feet, about 2,000 feet from the summit, Steve got too sick and, and couldn't summit, but the, the journey was really what mattered. And um, yeah, we're, st we're still working on that. That was, that was an amazing project, though, in the sense that, uh, you know, you're, you're so high in altitude at times and, you know, there's no, no nothing anywhere. Right. And then we were in the jungle at like got all the way down to, I think, 3,100 feet was mm -hmm. the lowest. And, I mean, I, I'm not a bug person. I, I don't love bugs. I'm, <laughs> I've gotten better through my travels, but they're definitely not, never been a bug person. And yeah. so in Nepal, though, like full meditation, because every time you pick up your camera, there'd be so many flies that, like, <laughs> You put the camera up to your face and I'd have to close my left eye because I look through the viewfinder at my right yeah. and there would be fly. I'd cl close my mouth. There'd be flies crawling in my ears and up my nose and trying to get in my mouth. I mean, you'd have a mil millions of you on you in seconds. Yeah. And uh, I didn't like anything about that. <laughs> it teaches a certain kind of patience and focus, I would imagine. It definitely does. Okay, the other trip uh, to, to Greenland, which is another place, I mean, Nepal being one of them, but another place that people rarely get to go to, uh, I think, such a fascinating country and, and climate. Tell me about that trip, what brought you there and what it was like. Yeah, so Greenland, um, it's kind of like the eighth continent, you know, like you don't really know much about it and you're like, I know it's going to be cold and kind of like Alaska, but, you know, what is it going to be like? And um, we had the opportunity to go over there with uh, Jimmy Chin and Kit Delorier mm -hmm. for a DJI, which is a drone company, um, a DJI project. And so we went over there and got to uh, ski 
couloirs and um, film a film piece for DJI um, when we were over there. And it was, I mean, it was phenomenal. Um, the landscape is so dramatic, just huge couloirs and mountains jetting out of the ocean. And Alaska is a lot like that in some ways, but there's definitely just something about it that's a, that's a little different. And the time of year that we ended up going, it was a, they were going through a shed cycle in the snow. So we had to really be careful with um, avalanche conditions and, and where we skied and, and didn't get to actually do everything we wanted to. But um, we, it was one of the best trips I've actually been on. Great crew all around. It was, it was really fun. So, I mean, you didn't start out being a producer from the, from the jump or being a coordinator. If it's an internship position when you started, what kept you coming back? What, what kept you there, you know, longer than a traditional internship might have lasted uh, to want to keep on doing something that, I mean, you didn't have a background or education in? Right. I think it was the promise of, I, I well, a couple things. I think it was one, the promise of seeing that, okay, if I work hard, and production is a lot of just getting down to the nitty gritty and working hard. And if I work hard, then I can figure this out and I'll be able to have some really amazing experiences. And then the other side of that is I could also see that the people that I was working with, you know, it wasn't just, you know, we're making dog food commercials you know it's like we're trying our hardest to to really push through projects and things that are the most important to us and that will make the world a better place or, or try to make the world a better place and yeah. and that's you know doing good is is hard but um it's you know it's it's the most important thing to have meaning so what were some of those early projects, if you could look back and uh, describe one or two that meant something to you that gave you that feeling of, yeah, I want to keep on doing this? Oh, well, um, I would say the most memorable moment that I've ever really had in this job, which was really hard, was in May in 2016, actually, mm -hmm. in Nairobi, Kenya. And it was during the ivory burn. And Kenya wanted to make a statement to the world that, you know, we will not stand for poaching. And they burned 105 tons of elephant ivory and something like 1.3 tons of rhino horn. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I was documenting that, you know, you're, you're so in the moment and running around that you really don't process what you're witnessing and it wasn't until I got back to the hotel and I started looking through my photos that I realized what I had just been a part of and I, I cried my eyes out that night and it was it was the beginning of random bursts of tear and anger really against those responsible but those also who just don't understand and don't care and it was it was kind of like working. I really had to work through that experience. I mean, it was kind of like having PTSD, to be honest, because I was so mad and, and I would come back to Jackson and, you know, it's, it's, it's wealthy and everybody's super happy and most people are on vacation. And it was just like, I just get angry because it's like, how do you not see what's happening, you mm -hmm. know? And 
that was really hard, but it was also like, you know, I can't, I have to remember that I can't change the world by myself, you know, because I can't, and I can't control anyone else and I can only do what I can. But that was, that kind of experience is what I want to continue to do and, and the most important thing to me about what I do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think along those lines, one of the best things of travel and, and best seems a bit uh, misfitting of a word in the sense, but I think the main reason we travel is for the change in perspective that it brings. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what has travel changed in you or, or sparked in you? Well, I think like, you know, through work, I think I've been to something like 12 different countries over my time there Mm -hmm. Um, from everywhere from Kenya, Jordan, Brazil, Nepal, Iceland. And, uh, you know, you, you really learn so much when you travel. And, and to me, the most important thing about that is what you do with all that knowledge and experience that you gain through traveling to other places and becoming a, a global a global citizen. And what what does it mean to be a global citizen? Um, to me, being a global citizen really means having an open mind and being willing to learn and garner more knowledge and information in a way that you can then share it to the masses and bring bring awareness to topics that are important to you, which to me would be the climate conservation and humanity so it's not just about going somewhere and learning something for yourself but but i think the the act of then sharing that with others too a hundred percent a hundred percent and you know to be honest it's it's not easy you know people don't like uncomfortable topics like how many times have you been sitting watching tv and then all of a sudden you see you know the unicef or the sarah mclaughlin animal shelter commercial and you're like, oh, my God, mute, change, you right. know, because it makes you so sad. And the immediate reaction to, to stuff that makes you sad is to turn away. And I see that, you know, on my Instagram all the time. And and the photos, I find that the photos that mean the most to me are the ones that usually don't get very much engagement, mm-hmm. uh, which can be really discouraging. But then, you know, you'll get those messages every now and then that it makes you realize like okay you know it's worth it even if one person is like hey like that that changed my outlook or that helped me in some way that that definitely means something that's it for the show thanks for listening and i hope you liked it travel is something i find endlessly fascinating and to hear from so many different perspectives it helps to remember why it's worthwhile and also maybe what's worth practicing when you do it if you enjoyed the show do me a favor hit subscribe leave a rating and a review and most of all tell someone else you think might like it If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. (music) 